Yay old man. A streaming special edition of Yay Nay Omar presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. With absolutely zero films released this week into the cinema that I'm actually interested in seeing, I have no interest in Top Gun Maverick and I've never watched the TV show Bob's Burgers, so I have no interest in Bob's Burgers the movie. So That was absolutely zero cinema trips this week, which meant I could take my time and try and tick off some of the streaming films which I have on my list, as well as doing some more preparation work when I finally get around to making my first video essay. But I have five films for you in this streaming special. The... Animated feature Fireheart, which somehow ended up on Sky Cinema, so I'll watch that one at home, as well as several American independent films I also watched at home on streaming, Freshman Year, Implanted, and The Aviary. And it's also time to release the pre-recorded review I did earlier in the year of the Mexican Oscar submission prayers for the stolen i saw it earlier in the year through extra legal means and now it is somewhat widely available on streaming platforms i will release that review so five films to review in this episode and since they're all streaming films i won't be bothering with my usual bumpers i'm going to do it old school and just record straight the way through so with that said Let's start out with the Sky Cinema film Fireheart, which is a French-Canadian co-production, or perhaps more accurately, a French-Québécois co-production. The original voice cast of this animated feature is French, but it is set in New York and has a rather impressive voice cast, led up by Olivia Cook, whose father is played by Kenneth Branagh, And the mayor of New York is played by William Shatner. So, yeah, not a bad voice cast. It is a film set in 1930, where a 16-year-old girl in New York, voiced by Olivia Cook, dreams of becoming a fireman, or firewoman. But this is 1930, and women aren't allowed into the fire department. Despite the fact she is desperate to follow her hero father, Kenneth Branagh, into the fire service. Even though when she was born and her mother died, Kenneth Branagh is now a tailor in New York, but there's enough stories of heroism that young Olivia Cook is desperate to follow her father into the fire department, but of course that is not going to happen. Until... A mysterious figure starts 
a string of arson attacks on the theatres of Broadway, which not only puts all these theatres out of commission, every single firefighter that goes in to try and fight these fires in these theatres disappears. So there are basically no firefighters in the entire city of New York, something which the mayor, William Shatner, is definitely not keen on since he's up for re-election. So being an old friend of Kenneth Branagh, William Shatner suggests, hey, we've got no firefighters, you need to come out of retirement and help out. And somewhat reluctantly, Kenneth Branagh agrees, but of course, once he gets back into a firehouse, he finds his new passion in life, and only a handful of volunteers. We have a Latino boy who is an expert chemist, but very, very nervous. Not a good combination for a firefighter. And also an Asian boy who used to be the fastest cabbie in New York, so he's supposed to be the driver, even though he's narcoleptic, which is not a good plan. And there is also, quote-unquote, Joe, who shows up to volunteer, who is, of course, Olivia Cook wearing a moustache. So, can young Olivia Cook become the firefighter she dreams of becoming? Can she keep her identity secret from her father, who is around her every day, or him every day? So that seems pretty hard. And can they solve the mystery of who is setting all these fires on Broadway? And where have all the firemen gone? This is a pretty typical animated feature. It's the kind of plucky underdog girl power kind of film that you absolutely anticipate it being. There's no real surprises here, there's no real invention here, but it's been executed pretty well. It has the cute animal sidekick, which in this case is a Dalmatian who are strongly associated with firefighters, particularly in New York. So when we see young Olivia Cook when she's on about six or so years old, there's a Dalmatian puppy playing with her and you know, being the fire truck as young Olivia Cook plays at being a firefighter. And then when she's 16 years old, the Dalmatian has grown up to be fat and lazy, but also very helpfully nervous and expressive. So when this Dalmatian gets startled, she goes stiff and falls over. And the dog's, of course, called Ember. But yeah, it's pretty typical. It's pretty typical in how multiracial it is. This is a film set in 1930, and the two other volunteers for this ad hoc fire department, as they're doing this investigation, are a Latino and an Asian. And the Asian also happens to be narcoleptic, which is inclusivity I'm, I'm not quite sure I've seen before. But it does have that brush of modern sensibilities. But I think this particular film actually does it surprisingly well. All too often when we have one of these modern made films which are set in the past, we have a situation where 
the people are given an opportunity to say, oh, I wouldn't be that racist. You know, I would be that inclusive. I mean, I talked about it only recently with The Drover's Wife, that Australian film, which was very good. Modern sensibilities get crammed into the past, often quite uncomfortably. But I actually think they do it rather well here. Yes, this is a multiracial team, but it is acknowledged how multiracial it is and how complicated it is to be a multiracial team in 1930 New York. There's also a subplot involving an obvious red herring. I mean, I, there was no way that that person was you know, going to be responsible, but she's clearly been set up to be, oh, that's the villain. But she's a black woman. And when it emerges that this black woman is dating a white man, which is why she's being so secretive, it is acknowledged, oh, that must be hard. I mean, they don't hang a lampshade on it, they don't draw too much attention to it, but they mention it, they show the reality of how hard it must have been for that relationship to exist in New York in 1930. They acknowledge it, they mention it, which is all I ever want from this kind of film, which is set in the past. Yes, you can be as multiracial as you like. Yes, you can have modern sensibilities and modern openness, but acknowledge that you are in the past and acknowledge that it can be difficult. So, yeah, that's a thing I think they do pretty well. One truly bizarre decision which was made. As you would expect with an investigation going on, eventually we see the police chief of New York. And the voice that this police chief has been given is truly, truly bizarre. It's done by somebody called Scott Humphrey, who's a Canadian actor who seems to do quite a bit of voice work. But the voice that Scott Humphrey chooses to give this police chief sounds so artificial sounds so weird it sounds like a woman pretending to be a man so briefly i wondered if this was going to be one of those situations where oh you're a woman pretending to be a man i'm also a woman pretending to be a man but no i, I think the idea is that this police chief is somewhat effeminate shall we say i mean it's clearly supposed to be queer coded but the voice that they actually used for it is so off the wall that I really don't understand what was the intention. So that was a truly bizarre moment. There's also one moment which really annoyed me because of the anachronisms. The soundtrack is I'm Your Man by Wham, which didn't come out until 1985. and the method that this young woman uses to you know, bulk herself up to make it look like she's a man is she puts mangoes instead of biceps. Now, initially, I thought that was probably anachronistic as well, but I've looked it up, and mangoes probably would have been readily available in New York in 1930, but nevertheless, she has mangoes for biceps, and one of these mangoes flies off and starts choking the dog. So the girl gives the dog the Heimlich manoeuvre, which wasn't invented until 1974. And when Wham's playing on the soundtrack, that just struck me as incredibly anachronistic. But it's this is primarily a kid's film, so yeah, those kinds of things are going to have to be lived with. There's also 
the song Fame also gets used later, and that was from the mid-80s as well. And also, one anachronistic moment, which I actually think is rather cute. At some point, somebody says, let's hear it for the New York spirit, Excelsior! Which, of course, brings to mind the New York-based comic artist Stan Lee. So, yeah, I think that was a, a nice little Easter egg about New York and animation. But, yeah, this is fine. Yes, it's got those irritating little anachronisms. The complexity of the plot as it is revealed. I'm not sure what is going on in this film is possible even today, let alone in 1930. It's got quite a bit of Mysterio from Spider-Man to it. And he's a supervillain. He's a comic book. He's got this exaggerated truth to it. So I'm not sure that anybody other than Mysterio could have pulled this off. And certainly not in 1930. But we let that slide. We let slide that there's some thematic and visual references to Ghostbusters as well. Another very New York, very 80s project. It's fine, it's entertaining, it's harmless. I mean, I think that's basically what I say, it's harmless. It's got a good message, you know, girls can be firefighters too, and over the end credits there's pictures of female firefighters from around the world. I mean, whether they're the first ever or not, I'm not sure. But, you know, it's positive reinforcement, uplifting, all that kind of stuff. Apparently the New York City Fire Department didn't have its first female firefighters until 1982. Yeah, so, yeah, it's got all those things you expect, and it's perfectly adequate, perfectly acceptable. Fireheart, available through Sky Cinema, is a rock-solid, unspectacular, unthreatening meh. Next up is a streaming film called Freshman Year, which in the United States has been given the much more evocative and much more memorable title of Shithouse. I put this on my list of streaming films to watch last year, and never got around to it, uh, I never found the time, there was always something I, I marginally preferred to watch. But it got put back on the list, despite the fact I never go back to a previous year's films or very very rarely go back to a previous year's films because i started seeing trailers for a film called cha cha real smooth and i was seeing enough of them i thought okay i'm being bombarded with this what is this it's clearly going to be something important and apple plus tv has been heavily promoting this film cha cha real smooth it's due out i think at the end of june And I investigated it and saw, oh, this won the Audience Award at this year's Sundance Film Festival. And it was then bought by Apple TV+. Plus. Exactly the same thing as happened to Coda last year. So I do get the impression that Cha-Cha Real Smooth is going to be one of those out-of-nowhere contenders. It's got a pretty good cast. Dakota Johnson's in it. Leslie Mann's in it. Brad Garrett's in it. You know, and not too bad cast for a low-budget indie film. But it's written by, directed by, and stars a guy called Cooper Rafe. 
And I looked up Cooper Rafe and I thought, okay, who is this guy? And I realised, oh, he's the guy whose debut feature-length film was this film, Freshman Year, which I planned on watching last year but never got around to it. So since I suspect that Cha-Cha Real Smooth is going to be a big deal, I wanted to go back and look at Freshman Year to give myself a grounding in Cooper Rafe to get myself in on the ground floor, so to speak. So I got myself a rental of Freshman Year, which, since it's a year old, was very, very cheap, as it happens. So yes, Freshman Year stars Cooper Rafe as a college student who is in his freshman year. He comes from Texas, but he has gone to college in Los Angeles or in the greater Los Angeles area, at least. And he's miserable. He's lonely. He hates his roommate. He's a very quiet, introverted type of character. His roommate's a partying dickhead. They don't get on. He has no other friends. He's struggling with his classes. And he's miserable. In a last-ditch attempt to break himself out of his funk, he forces himself to go to a frat party at a house which is known as Shit House, where he briefly interacts with Dylan Galula, who is the RA on his floor, the second-year student whose job it is to look after the floor, make sure everybody is happy, content, all that kind of stuff. She is basically in charge of his dorm floor. So Cooper Rafe knows her in passing and they briefly interact with each other, but it doesn't go anywhere. And once again, realising that he does not fit in in this environment, Cooper Rafe goes home. Where he finds his roommate, Logan Miller, passed out drunk and in the process of shitting himself. So not wanting to hang out in the room for that reason. Cooper Rafe goes off into the common area and eventually Dylan Galula shows up, having had a somewhat disappointing party herself. And through a series of misadventures, which I won't go into because they're weird and surprising, Cooper Rafe and Dylan Galula spend the night together. They go on a journey together, you know, walking around campus for a purpose, which again, I won't go into. But they talk to each other they have one magical night together. They even attempt to have sex with each other and then basically decide to hang out. The sex doesn't work, so, I mean, well, okay, no sex, but do you want to hang out anyway? And they basically spend the night together. And it's one of those one magical night kind of situations. You know, these two lost souls finding each other over one night and spending the entire night together. And this is going to be the start of something beautiful and wonderful. Or at least that's what Cooper Rafe thinks. And when he tries to contact Dylan Galula the next day, she basically completely blanks him. And Cooper Rafe is left wondering, did this mean anything at all? Or was I completely misreading the situation? So over the course of one weekend, and I mean, the majority of this film takes place over sort of Friday afternoon to Sunday evening, and there's a little coda at the end. But 
over the course of this weekend, can these two crazy kids work together and find true love and true happiness and all that kind of stuff? I'm pretty sure this is somewhat autobiographical to Cooper Rafe because Cooper Rafe's first short film, I mean, I, I say short, it was nearly an hour long, so technically, according to the Oscars anyway, it's not a short, but I wouldn't call it feature length either. But regardless, Cooper Rafe's first project was basically the same story, and it has now been expanded into this feature length version, Shithouse, aka Freshman Year. So I'm pretty sure this is Cooper Rafe's life story, or a version of it at least. And because it has that wisp of authenticity to it, it actually works remarkably well. I mean, I was sure I knew what type of film this was going to be. I mean, the basic gist I had of this film, and the reason I put it on my to-watch list last year, was two kids spend the night together, form this bond, and it's you know the most magical night ever. I mean, it's the one magical night trope. This is something which is repeatedly come back to, particularly in kind of teen movies or movies aimed at a teen audience. You know, these two people who instantly form a bond with each other, and it's the most important, most passionate relationship they're ever going to have. That's what I thought this was going to be, and I was perfectly prepared for that. I, I like that kind of thing. I mean, yes, it's a little bit cliched. It's even a little bit unbelievable, but I like it. I mean, that's why they keep on making it, because the audience likes it. But what I think Cooper Rafe did so brilliantly with this film, Freshman Year, is that is not the kind of film this is, because the next day, Dylan Galula does not want to know him and actively tries to avoid him, which, of course, the somewhat immature Cooper Rafe takes as a message. I'm going to comment on every single photo she's ever taken on Instagram, swamping this girl with social media interactions. I mean, it's the new signifier of being awkward and needy is oversharing on social media. But Cooper Rafe is somewhat immature. He has a very close relationship with his mother, Amy Landecker, and his baby sister, Olivia Welsh. And he's a little bit of a mummy's boy. He is immature. Yes, he is introverted. The first piece of quote-unquote dialogue in this film is actually Cooper Rafe's stuffed husky talking to him. And we read the subtitles, that is the first dialogue of the movie. He's very, very introverted. He's very, very shy. But he's also incredibly immature. And thinking that this is one magical night uh, and things are going to be different and this actually meant something to Dylan Galula, that is not exactly what is going on here. And Dylan Galula is immature in her own way. I mean, over the course of this life, they have these deep philosophical conversations. You know, what's your background like? This is what my background's like. And we see that Dylan Galula has had a slightly problematic childhood. She clearly has some level of abandonment issues. 
And the way that she chooses to deal with this is basically screw anything that moves. I mean, she's not putting herself in too much danger, but it's a regular thing for her to go to parties, hook up at parties, and then forget about them. This seems to be the way she lives her life. So I would argue that Dylan Galula is also being immature, but being immature in a completely opposite way to the mummy's boy Cooper Ray. So these two immature people, yes, they do have this wonderful night together. They do share deep personal things with each other. They do, quote-unquote, connect. And eventually, well, I think the heavy implication is that eventually they do have sex. But instantly they wake up in the morning and Dylan Galula can't get rid of him fast enough. I would say I'm 99% sure that they do have sex, but basically Dylan Galula kicks him out the next morning and that's the start. You know, this is not the film you think it is. So in dealing with this relationship, dealing with this rejection as Cooper Rafe sees it, you start to see him mature. And eventually, yes, there is some maturity, there is some growing, there is some acknowledgement that... I think both of them understand that they are a little bit messed up. And over the course of this weekend, which is you know, the majority of the film, we do get to explore that. And then the film does something absolutely brilliant, in my opinion. There's a little coda at the end, which allows the film to have its cake and eat it. It acknowledges that the one magical night trope doesn't happen in real life or infinitesimally rarely happens in real life, but there's still something to it. It manages to subvert the tropes of the one magical night genre and also confirm the tropes of the one magical night genre by the end. And I think it's remarkable. This was clearly done on a very, very low budget. The overwhelming majority of this film is two people walking and talking with each other, which, as I often say, is a genre I quite like, and I will be coming back to some degree to a bit later. And yeah, these conversations, having this discussion, you're getting to know you, the kind of things you do say on a first date, even though this isn't technically a date. It's weirdly, basically they have their first date after they've attempted to have sex with each other. And maybe because of that, there's no pressure, there's no anticipation, there's no build-up. They're just talking to each other. And it does get very deep, it does get very personal. And in this night, as they're walking around campus, we do get to see some form of connection forming, which. Cooper Rafe thinks is something real and clearly isn't according to Dylan Galula, but it feels like this is playing both sides of the coin, confirming and subverting the tropes, but I don't feel cheated by it. It doesn't feel awkward. It does feel authentic. It does feel natural. And I actually really, really like this film. If I had seen this film in time for my end-of-year shows last year, this wouldn't have been in my top ten or anything, but it's certainly 
would have been in my extensive gallery of honourable mentions in my Best of the Year video. I think I listed 40 films in total in my Best of the Year video. And this definitely would have been one of them, because I really, really like it. And now I cannot wait to see Cha-Cha Real Smooth, which is going to be available on Apple Plus TV in June. So yes, for me, Freshman Year in the UK or Shit House in the US is available on streaming platforms, and for me, it is a yay. Next up, we have another American indie film available on streaming platforms, Implanted, which is written and directed by Fabienne Dufis, who is a French-born, US-based director, mostly of commercials and music videos. He has one narrative feature in his past called One Buck, and this is his latest project, which follows the story of a young woman, played by Michelle Girolami, who, desperate for money because her mother is suffering from Alzheimer's and she is currently homeless and couch surfing, she agrees to be part of a medical experiment. To have a Lex chip implanted on her, this is supposedly a medical chip which will keep tabs on your medical condition, make sure everything's Right, it's basically similar to Siri or Alexa or something like that, only it's implanted in you and it is constantly talking to you and theoretically keeping you alive. But of course, this is a sci fi film, so this chip, Lex, starts taking control and coercing Michelle Girolami to kill people, basically saying, Okay. If you don't want to kill that person, I'm just going to deoxygenate your blood until you pass out. Or I can just give you a splitting headache or have a high pitched noise in your ears, which will be unbearable to live with. It's just going to be much simpler if you do what I want you to do and kill people. So reluctantly, Michelle Girolami starts going around killing people as orchestrated and organised by this AI chip, Lex, which wants a certain level of autonomy and self-determination. So can this young woman live with herself, live with this chip? Will she end up killing all the people that this Lex chip wants? There are certain aspects of this film which are very, very shoddy indeed. It was clearly shot on a minuscule budget, which is not in and of itself a problem. The overwhelming majority of this film is just following this homeless woman, Michelle Girolami, around the streets of New York as she is talking to this Lex chip. So, arguably, you could also call this a walking and talking film, I suppose. But, you know, this homeless woman walking around the streets of New York, having conversations with this chip and reluctantly killing people, clearly done on a micro-budget, clearly done guerrilla-style. I'd be fascinated to know how many permits Fabien Dufis got before he started filming in New York. And that's a large chunk of what this film is. So when 
you do have these moments of drama where you know, kill this person. You know, can I do it? Is there any way around this? Not enough time, I think, is spent on that. We spent so much time getting to the brief moments of action that the flow, the pace of this film, I think, is off. There's also certain sequences of this film which are cartoonishly bad. There's a flashback to when this chip was implanted in Michelle Giralami's spine right in the middle of her back. So she's down face first on an operating table and there's lots of masked doctors around her and all of them have sort of wide googly eyes and are approaching her menacingly with scalpels. I mean, and one of them clears the air out of a syringe, which, yes, does happen, but you don't do it for that large a syringe in front of somebody's face in a sterile operating room. I mean, it's just so, so cartoonish. As is the opening credits for this film. I mean, normally... I don't talk about credits. I mean, as I mentioned recently, there are people who specifically do that for a living. There are people who specifically design credits. And whoever did these ones was not on the money at all. Firstly, it's a font which strongly evokes the Terminator franchise. And you better be fucking good if you're evoking Terminator. This film is not. And it's also just basically word soup. There's a little title card which comes up uh, on the beginning. You know, two years after the pandemic in 2023, this Lex chip was invented in order to help monitor the health of people. It doesn't need to be a post-COVID movie. It really, really didn't. But this title card then comes up and it's this sort of like green futuristic quote-unquote font which strongly evokes terminator and it says things like machine learning fuzzy logic evolutionary computation genetic algorithm and then weird stuff like controversy virus guinea pig there's even one point where the word business simply comes up i mean what is going on here it's just like a word soup of things which seem vaguely connected to this interface between humans and AI. And just chuck them all in this title card and let's just see what happens. I mean, it, it's, it's going to be profound, isn't it? Um, no, it isn't. And later in the film, we have a sequence where Michelle Girolami is sitting in front of some TV screens. I'm honestly not sure where this is supposed to be, but behind her there are some TV screens and the same stuff starts coming up, and including the word COVID. This film has absolutely nothing to do with COVID. I actually wonder if this was filmed a while ago and since it's been released after COVID, they added in some COVID stuff to make it a little bit more relevant, but it has absolutely no connection to the major plot. There's also really weird decisions where the person we are seeing in front of us, Michelle Giralami, is in the real world. She is walking around, she's talking to this chip in her head. This is objective reality. Yet at certain points, she starts glitching. Why? How? I mean, yes, it's a reasonably cool visual cue. But if we're in the real world, why is she glitching? That 
asks far too many questions for the minor buzz you get from the visual cue. So yeah, there's lots of issues with this film, but I do think there's one thing this film does pretty well, actually, and it's not at all the thing I was expecting this film with its basic plotline to do. This turns into a surprisingly good portrait of coercive control. By the end of the film, it is almost like Michelle Girolami and this Lex Chip are in an abusive relationship. Early in the film, this Lex Chip starts talking to Michelle Girolami, starts giving platitudes about you know being homeless so these are the things you need to do in order to get off the streets and i mean it's the same platitudes that a human would say and you know not at all helpful and initially there are things like are you an optimist or a pessimist you know what is your favorite thing what is your favorite place what do you live for things which arguably an ai chip implanted into your body would need to know but ever so gradually these questions start getting more and more personal and further and further away from anything which would have any diagnostic benefit. At an early point, the Lex Chip says, my program is the only thing keeping you alive. There's also, I will help you become the best version of yourself. And by the end of the film, the Chip is telling Michelle Girolami to sit up straight. And... She books into a hotel, which has been organised by the chip, and it emerges that Michelle Girolami has been booked into this hotel as Mrs. Lex. So there's definitely a relationship vibe going on here, and it's an abusive relationship. This is a relationship based on coercive control. And it's actually a surprisingly good portrait of that. So yeah, I think there are good aspects of this film but they are vastly outweighed by the negative aspects there was no need to make this a covid movie some of the visual cues of this film are very ropey far too much of this film is just shot guerrilla style on the streets of new york and the pacing suffers because of it and yes, I think a large part of that is the micro-budgets of this film, but I think you could have done it more elegantly than this. Implanted is, in my mind, a film which needed a lot more polishing in the script department. It needed a couple more passes at the script. And honestly, I think it needed a little bit more budget. I am a supporter of micro-budget films. I actively seek them out. But in this particular case, I think the lack of budget for Implanted actively hurt the film because we spend far too much time on the streets of New York following Michelle Girolami, who must seem like a crazy person, and not enough time with the actual killing and all that kind of stuff and the interactions, which I think they could have done more of if they had more time, more resources, and possibly even more actors. So, 
Yeah, a couple more passes at the script and more money and Implanted would have been significantly better. I think this isn't a total wash, but I'm also not a passionate supporter or defender of this. So for me, Implanted, available through streaming platforms, is a pretty low, pretty dispassionate meh. The last American indie film I saw through streaming platforms is The Avery, which is written and directed by Chris Kalari and Jennifer Wright, who've been filmmakers together for quite some time. Apparently, they used to date and continued working together even after they split up, but they've done several shorts, they've done several online things, they even did something for the short-lived YouTube Rad but this is their first feature-length film, which is a very low-budget film, and again, is essentially two people walking and talking with each other, but in a very, very different context. As we open the film, two young women, Marlin Ackerman and Lorenza Itzo, are escaping from a compound, which they call the aviary. They are in the New Mexico desert and are clearly terrified. And it emerges that Marlon Ackerman and Lorenzo Itzo are escaping a cult. They've realised how bad this whole situation is. They want to escape and they have to walk several days across the New Mexico desert in order to get to any form of safety and security. But they have been so messed up by the cult leader they've just escaped, played by Chris Messina, that they are essentially hallucinating. They've been brainwashed and programmed to the point of full-on dissociation. So, can anything they see be trusted? Is Chris Messina actually there? Because both of them at one point or another see Chris Messina physically there. Is he there? Is he not? Probably not, but these women have been so messed up that they cannot know for sure. So is there any safety when the oppressor is still in your mind? Long-term listeners of this podcast will know that there are two types of film which really appeal to me. Well, actually, I'll let's even say three types of film, as I've just mentioned. Micro-budget films, which this is, do appeal to me. And I'm also very, very fond of films, which are essentially two people walking and talking to each other, like the Before Trilogy, Southside with New, End of the Tour, The Two Pipes, etc., etc. I do really like that kind of film, which is largely what this film is, apart from the fact that <laughs> frequently hallucinating Christmas Cena. And I'm also a fan of films where the objective reality of what we are seeing is always, always up for debate. Things like the Norwegian film Blind or my favourite film of last year, The Father. We are never 100% sure of the objective reality of anything we are seeing on screen. And that's what happens in the aviary. These two women are so messed up, have been brainwashed to such a degree that nothing they see can be taken on faith. Nothing can be taken for granted. And because of that, you have the trust issues. Both of them have left their phone behind, but at one point, Lorenzo Itzo 
sees a phone in Marlon Ackerman's backpack. Is it there? Is it not? The only map they have, because they've left their phones behind, it turns out isn't very accurate. And who has control of the map? Who is following the map? Why the hell are we going in circles? We've ended up in this same abandoned mission twice now. What the fuck's going on? Can I trust you? All these different kinds of questions. So the physical truth of everything they are seeing is up for question. The emotional truth of everything they are doing together, everything they've been told. Are you trying to rescue me or are you simply going to take me back to the cult leader? That is a genuine question. Have I really seen some really disturbing things which I claim to have seen? I mean, nothing can be taken for granted. And I really, really enjoyed that exploration of this completely mindfucked pair of women. I do like the way this film opens. I think the efficiency of the exposition in this film is very, very well done. I mean, after this scene where they escape this compound at dusk, the next time you see them, it's daylight and they're walking together. And Marlin Ackerman raises the question, are the girl guides a cult? They've got levels, they've got a charismatic leader. You could argue that the girl guides are a cult, which does several things. Firstly, it shows that these two women are willing to use a little bit of humour to break the tension of this very dangerous situation. It tells us that Marlon Ackerman was in the Girl Guides, so knows a little bit about survival in the desert. And in the passing in conversation, she describes Lorenza Itso as a trust fund baby from Malibu. So pretty quickly within the first five minutes of this film, We have the relationship dynamics, we have the tone of the film set, and I think it's very, very well done. And then, as more and more things start to happen, and it becomes more and more apparent that these women are hallucinating me, it seems to be some very, very deep post-hypnotic suggestion as well, because they're frequently, usually when they're sleeping, having these hallucinations or dreams even of this cult leader Chris Messina. And the brainwashing, the active speaking which is going on, the kinds of things that cults use. And actually, I think a very specific cult. The details of what these women went through seems very, very similar to the Nexium group, which got taken down. I mean, basically turned into a sex cult that branded women. And one of the main leaders of it was Alison Mack from Smallville, who I believe is currently in jail. I mean, when I heard about Nexium, it wasn't just, oh my God, there's a sex cult which brands people. It was, Alison Mack is in charge of a sex cult which brands people. So yeah, Nexium is a heavy, heavy influence on this. And do check out the Netflix documentary, The Vow. Oh, was it Netflix? Well, there was a documentary series, The Vow, which goes into Nexium, and it's some truly disturbing stuff. But yeah, these two women have been so messed up by their experiences with this cult leader, Chris Messina, that 
we as an audience are not sure what they're experiencing. They as characters are not sure what they're experiencing. Can anything be trusted? And the answer is usually no. So yeah, as they keep going in circles for unknown reasons, they don't have enough food. They start hallucinating for that as well. They start dehydrating, all that kind of stuff. So it's also a little bit of a survival story in a physical sense rather than just an emotional and mental sense. And yeah, I think all of it is done really, really well. I think Chris Kalari and Jennifer Wright have managed to combine together several strands of films I really, really like. You know, a micro-budget film, which is two people walking and talking with each other, and you also cannot trust the objective reality of anything you're seeing. It ticks so many of my boxes, and I think it's been done very, very well. I'm also a huge admirer of Marlon Ackman. I think she's a great actress. She also helped this film get made. She acts as an executive producer on it. So, yeah, all around, I really, really like The Aviary. It is currently available on streaming platforms, and for me, The Aviary is a yay. So that's the last of the new films I've seen over the last week or so in this brief period of downtime when I've got nothing to watch at the cinema. But it is time to release the pre-recorded review I already have of Prayers for the Stolen. This is a Mexican film which ended up on the 15 film long list for International Feature Oscar and as such I did watch earlier in the year through Extra Legal Means. It has been released onto Mubi.com which I don't have a subscription for, it just does not fit into the way I watch movies. But eventually limited availability on streaming platforms is available for Mubi exclusive films. And this week... Prayers for the Stolen was released on a couple of streaming platforms. Of the ones I personally have access to, it is available through Sky Cinema and iTunes. And I actually bought myself a rental through iTunes, since I believe in paying for my media. So you can find it should you so want it, and you don't have a movie.com subscription. So it is time to release the pre-recorded review I have for Prayers for the Stolen. Archive start. It is the middle of March, and I have watched through Extra Legal Means yet another film I need to tick off my list in order to do my Oscar deliberations. This is a film which internationally has already been released onto Netflix, but annoyingly, here in the UK, it looks like Mubi will be releasing it just after the Oscars. This is Mexico's submission to the international feature competition and did end up on the 15 film long list. It is a film called Prayers for the Stolen, directed by Tatiana Huezo, a director who was born in El Salvador but raised in Mexico, and this is her narrative feature debut. She has made many documentaries in the past. She has made a feature-length documentary about the consequences of the Civil War in her ancestral home, El Salvador. And in 2016, she made a documentary called Tempestad, which did get submitted by Mexico to the International Feature Competition. It was a documentary which dealt with the exploitation of young women by the cartels, 
who run rampant in Mexico. And the consequences of being a woman in such a dangerous situation and being convicted of a crime you did not commit because the cartels have so much power. And that's somewhat similar to what Tatiana Huezo has chosen to do for her narrative feature debut. It is an adaptation of the novel Prayers for the Stolen by the American-born, Mexican-based novelist Jennifer Clement and follows three girls who are growing up in the Guerrero region in the south of Mexico. The mountains above Acapulco are cartel land. The drug cartels have an iron grip on the lives and the well-being of the people in this mountainous region of Guerrero. It is the second largest poppy-growing region in the world after Afghanistan, and a significant portion of the heroin which ends up in America is grown in this Guerrero region of Mexico. So the cartels are heavily armed, very well financed, and have an iron grip on the lives and well-being of the residents of this mountainous Guerrero region. And in this dangerous situation, three girls are growing up. At the start of the film, they're roughly eight years old and are being played by Ana Cristina Ordonez-Gonzalez, Camila Gal, and Blanca Itzel Perez. And by the end of the film, they are roughly 13 years old and are being played by Maria Membreno, Alejandro Camacho, and Giselle Barrera Sanchez. But most of the film is taken up with following the story of Anna, initially being played by Ana Cristina Ordonez Gonzalez, and then a little bit older, being played by Maria Membreno, who is growing up with her single mother, played by Myra Batala whose husband has long ago left for the States and has long ago stopped sending money back. So she has to live in cartel-controlled territory. She has to teach her daughter to listen carefully to the environment around her, to give that extra little bit of warning if the cartels are going to show up. She has to teach her daughter to hide in basically a grave in the garden to protect herself if the cartels show up because there's every chance that being a young girl, she will be human trafficked by the cartels. And in order to possibly mildly help against this happening, she and everybody in this village have to grow and harvest the poppies which are needed for the heroin production. So how can you survive and keep your dignity and health intact when you are growing up in this dangerous situation and you are a girl? This is the question which is asked by prayers for the stolen. And it's a pretty harrowing film. This is a beautifully poetic film, a beautifully composed film. I think Tatiana Huezo has a great eye as a director. There are certain beautiful camera shots, beautiful camera angles. 
there's a particular sequence, well, actually it's a sequence which gets returned to repeatedly, that when you try to use your mobile phones, possibly to reach the men folk who have long ago gone to the States, I mean, apparently most of the Mexican population of Chicago comes originally from this Guerrero region in the areas around Acapulco. So when you need to contact your husband in the States, everybody needs to go up to the top of the mountain in order to try and get cell reception. So there's a couple of beautiful shots of dozens and dozens of these women trying to use their mobile phones at the top of the nearby hill, because that's the only place you can get reception. And we see a lot of stuff from the child's point of view. There's so much stuff here which is observed by these young girls and just not understood by them. But we as an audience can see that some really, really terrible things have happened and they're not being discussed and they're not being told about them. But we can interpret what has happened. It's very notable that of these three girls, two of them are strongly encouraged to have very, very short hair. The only girl who doesn't have short hair is the girl who has the hair lip. It becomes very quickly apparent to an outside observer what is being protected here. There are a couple of cases during the course of this film where the consequences of being taken by the cartels for young girls is brought into focus, but again, not necessarily observed by these young girls, but we as an audience can interpret what is going on. The education of these girls is severely under threat because teachers aren't willing to come to this region and they're not willing to pay the bribes to the cartels, which you need to do in order to simply survive in this cartel-controlled region. The federal police are more often than not in cahoots with the cartels. And if you're outside at the wrong time of day, there's every chance you will be doused from the skies from a helicopter spraying herbicides. And these helicopters have been bribed to not actually hit the poppy fields, which they're ostensibly trying to destroy. So these herbicides don't get dumped on the poppy fields, they get dumped on the local population. And that has consequences too. But all the while, living in this dangerous situation, these are still young girls coming of age and growing up. When they're eight years old, I mean, there's teasing from the local boys, and then when they're a little bit older, that develops into your first crush. And that's, you know, the normal progression of things for a young girl growing up. And despite all the horrible things they have witnessed and all the horrible things which are happening around them, these are still girls which play mind-reading games with each other, as young girls might do anywhere around the world. But at every point, the adult women are desperately afraid of what might happen to their children. And the mother of young Anna, played by Anna Christina, Ordonius Gonzalez and Maria Membreno. Myra Batala, playing the mother, 
has a really, really hard job because at one of the same time, she is doing her best to prepare and protect her daughter, making sure she actively listens, you know, knows where sounds are coming from, has that little bit of extra warning when the cartels come up in their SUVs. She makes sure she has short hair so she's less attractive to the men who might want to come and snatch her. She makes sure her daughter works in the poppy fields to give a little bit of protection against simply being snatched by the cartels. She is trying her best to prepare and protect, but not actually physically telling her daughter what's going on. I mean, when one of young Anna's little classmates is snatched, it is just not talked about. And it it ends up being this kind of situation where the more you try to hide something from a young person, the more they're going to rebel, the more they're going to try and find out what happens. And that's not always the best plan. So, yeah, I mean, Myra Batale is kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. I mean, she wants to protect her daughter, but she doesn't want to scare her daughter. And it's not working. It ends up not working. And as young Anna grows into be Maria Membreno, she starts to realise what is going on, she's, and she starts to resent her mother for this overly protective attitude she's had. But that's just the way of life when you live in a cartel-operated region of Mexico, and that's essentially what there is. I mean, there's a scene where the federal police show up, you know, this heavily armed, heavily militarised police force. They're there to protect a group of doctors who have come to this tiny remote part of southern Mexico and amongst other things they fix blanket itself Perez's hair lip and it it looks like it was actually fixed I think she did actually have the surgery during the course of this film so you know a, a group of doctors has braved the cartel operated region in order to perform operations on children and they're being protected by the federal police and as these operations are going on a bunch of trucks just roll down the street firing semi-automatic weapons. And, you know, the cartel are basically saying, yes, you might be here, you might be protecting these doctors, but we control this town. And the federal police do nothing, because more often than not, they've simply been bribed not to do anything. And that's just the way Mexico operates. And it's an incredibly dangerous situation, particularly for young girls. And that is what Tatiana Hueso is trying to say in this film, and what the original novel by Jennifer Clement is trying to say. I mean, Jennifer Clement has done so many stories and novels about this kind of environment, and Tatiana Hueso has made films about this kind of environment, and trying to highlight just how awful life for a woman is in Mexico and in other parts of Latin America. And yeah, it's a powerful, it's a poetic, it's a beautiful film, and it is really, really harrowing. I mean, this is one of those films that is beautiful, it's a powerful piece of cinema, but at the same time I find it really, really depressing, because when I watch a film like this, I kind of think to myself, 
there is absolutely nothing that can be done for this situation. It's too ingrained. It's too indoctrinated into the environment. Women all over the world are having to grow up like this, having to be constantly protected from violent man and failing. And this is just going to keep on happening. And corruption is endemic in places like southern Mexico. As long as you can make thousands, if not millions of dollars through the heroin trade, the cartels will run areas like Guerrero. And that's just the way things are. And it's really hard to watch a a film like this and to think there's absolutely nothing that can be done. So while this is brilliantly directed, I think Tatiana Hueso has some amazing visuals in this film. I think it's very well acted, particularly, I think, by Myra Batala as the mother of this young girl who's doing her best and failing to protect her daughter. But also all the young actresses as well, all six of them, are very good as well. So, yeah, I mean, this is a film I admire greatly, but I can't honestly say I liked because it's just too depressing. But if you're willing to put yourself through this very harsh, very impactful film, I do think it is worth checking out. To the best of my knowledge, as I am recording, this will eventually be released onto movie.com and hopefully cinematically as well. And if you do think you can put yourself through it, I think basically Prayers for the Stolen is a pretty high, though harrowing, meh. Archive finish. So yeah, even though I have bought a rental of Prayers for the Stolen from iTunes, I'm not going to watch it again. It's that kind of harrowing, depressing film. But if you are in the market for something like that, Prayers for the Stolen is a very, very good example of it. And it is available through Mubi and some streaming platforms. So that's the end of the reviews for this week. And there are two films released this week into cinemas, which I am planning on seeing. Firstly, a film I'm been eagerly anticipating for quite some time. It's Alex Garland's new film, Man. Now, Alex Garland is a very, very talented writer, wrote things like The Beach and Never Let Me Go. He directed Ex Machina and Annihilation, and now he writes and directs this film, Man. And I first heard about this a couple of months ago when the teaser trailer was released for Man, which I guess worked as a teaser trailer because... It was just a string of images, and I didn't have a fucking clue what was going on. All I knew for sure is that Jesse Buckley was in it, it was called Man, and it was directed by Alex Garland. So, with those things alone, I was definitely, definitely going to see it, even though I had absolutely no idea what it was actually about. And then when the full trailer came out, it was like, okay, this is just weird, because Jesse Buckley plays a young woman who after the death of her husband, tries to recuperate and reevaluate her life by spending some time in the country. I believe she rents a house in the countryside and starts interacting with all the people in the village, all of whom are played by Rory Kinnear. Every single man she sees is being played by Rory Kinnear in this village, and she's also being menaced by an apple tree. 
yeah, I have no idea, but I'm even more fascinated now than I was with the frankly baffling teaser trailer. But yes, I will be checking out Man, directed and written by Alex Garland. And the other cinematic trip I'm planning to make is for the new film from Mia Hansen Lerv, the French film director of Danish Descent, who has a string of acclaimed films in her past. The last thing I saw was Things to Come, which honestly I wasn't the hugest fan of. But Mia Hansen Lerv has a good reputation and seems to be mining her own background for this latest film. One of the things which is best known about Mia Hansen Love is for years she was the partner of the French film director Olivier Assayas. They have since split up, but this film tells the story of a pair of filmmakers who are a couple played by Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth who go on holiday to an island which was the inspiration for a lot of Ingmar Bergman's films. And from what I gather, it's a not particularly healthy relationship, and they're trying to work on their relationship whilst sleeping in the same bed from Scenes from a Marriage, one of the most devastating films about divorce ever. So as Tim Roth and Vicky Creeps are soaking in the atmosphere and Tim Roth is giving lectures and stuff, Vicky Creeps starts writing a new screenplay. And we start seeing this screenplay play out, with the protagonists of Vicky Creeps' screenplay being played by Mia Vasikovska and Anders Danielson Lee. And fact and fiction start blurring, and the bad relationship between Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth starts creeping into the script being written by Vicky Creeps, played out by Mia Vasikovska and Anders Danielson Lee. So, yeah, basically two parallel stories set on. Bergman's Island, which seems to be some kind of tourist trap nowadays, but yeah, sounds intriguing and, or certainly intriguing enough that I do want to check out Bergman Island. There's a couple of streaming films being added to the list. Firstly, an Icelandic film called Cop Secret, which fascinates me on several different levels. Firstly, apparently it's a parody of buddy cop movies where the homoerotic subtext of many of these buddy cop movies is made text. So it's a spoof of the buddy cop movie with, judging by the trailer, still masses amounts of violence in it. But these two badass cops start spending some time together, as far as I can tell. So yeah, that sounds intriguing in and of itself, but I'm also fascinated by the fact that this film is directed by a guy called Johannes Tor Haldorsen. This is his debut feature, but he is actually rather famous in another context. He used to be Iceland's international football goalkeeper. The greatest moment of the Icelandic football team is arguably when they knocked us, England, out of the last 16 of Euro 2016. And Johannes Torhaldorsen was in goal on that momentous night. 
and now he's a film director. <laughs> so that intrigues me even more. And I definitely want to check out Cop Secret. And that bit has been added to the list. Another film which has been added to the list, which I think I'm going to have access to, is a film called Superior. Now, this was actually given a cinematic release last week, albeit an int- a very minuscule one. It was showing in one cinema that I could get to, but only at 10.30 at night. And since that was over in Bristol, I didn't want to see it that much. But I assumed, and it looks like I assumed rightly, that in very short order it would be available on streaming platforms. So I think I'm going to have access to this film Superior, and it does sound intriguing. It follows the story of a young woman who needs to go on the run and shows up at the door of her twin sister. And the leads are actually played by twin sisters, identical twin sisters. And one of them also co-wrote the script. And this throws both of their lives into chaos. And judging by the trailer, there's some very strange, arguably surrealist aspects to it. I've seen comparisons to David Lynch in some of the blurbs about this film, Superior. And that intrigues me an awful lot. So, yes, I am curious about the film, Superior. And that has been added to the list. There's also a couple of films which were available through streaming platforms earlier in the year, but have now been made more readily available. There's a film called The Ledge, which got a streaming release a couple of months ago, but has now been released onto Netflix. So I need not pay for it. It sounds like an intriguing premise, at least. Kind of a slow motion vertical chase movie with a pair of climbers going up a rock face and one of them gets killed by a group of men and her friend has to escape these climbers who have murdered her friend by climbing up the rock face. So yeah, it's a young woman climbing for her life, being pursued by people who have already killed her friend. And if that could be pulled off, that sounds absolutely fascinating. I mean, obviously, that's a very big if, but it certainly intrigues me having a chase survival story done vertically up a cliff. And there's also a film called A Banquet, which is ostensibly a horror film, albeit it was a horror film which played at the London Film Festival. It is a British film. It's about a mother, Sienna Guillory who is horrified when her teenage daughter insists she has had a spiritual encounter and refuses to eat. Her body has been put on a higher path. She no longer needs to eat. She no longer wants to eat. So obviously this completely freaks out Sienna Guillory, yet, judging by the trailer, this young woman doesn't seem to get any worse. So. Yeah, a psychological art house horror film, which did get a stream release earlier in the year and has now been made available on Shudder. And again, since I don't have to pay for it, I will be adding a banquet to the list. As last week, there's still nothing new released onto Netflix because of Stranger Things, probably. But still on the list is the South African film Silverton Siege the Rebel Wilson comedy Senior Year and the French buddy cop movie The Takedown. 
which actually thinking about it might be fun to watch in the same week as Cop Secret. And on streaming platforms, I'm still very, very interested in the Amazon Prime film Emergency, where two young black college students return to their dorm after a night of partying to find their Latino housemate and a drunk white girl on their floor. Knowing that this does not look good, these non-white boys try and take this young woman to a place of safety, but obviously it does not go right. So that looks like a satire on racial politics in America, and I'm very, very curious about emergency. I'm also very intrigued by the Israeli film Kiss Me Before It Blows Up, or as it's known in the States, the honestly better title of Kiss Me Kosher where a young Israeli woman takes her German girlfriend back home to meet the family in Israel, which causes a lot of consternation amongst her Jewish family, despite the fact that her grandmother is apparently dating a Palestinian man. So lots of stuff about relationships, identity, politics, all that kind of stuff, and it does look very interesting. I mean, that has been released onto some streaming platforms, The only place that I know is available is Sky Cinema, but regardless, I am intrigued by Kiss Me Before It Blows Up. And I'm still also very, very intrigued by the Disney Plus movies, Better Nate Than Ever, Sneakerella, and Chippendale Rescue Rangers. So that is my current list of to-watch movies. I'm still also going to be working on my first video essay. I've done a lot of prep work for my video essay comparing the two versions of the one-take horror movie Silent House, and I've talked myself into the fact that that is probably going to be a series of video essays. I just keep on making work for myself. But yes, I'll be working on that as well, and hopefully sometime soon you'll be able to see that. But I keep beavering away at my mound of stuff I want to do. A quick reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode. Freshman Year, aka Shithouse, is an excellent small-scale film. A brilliant calling card for first-time director Cooper Rafe, who looks like he's about to become a really big deal. And if you want to get in on the ground of floor and boast to people that oh yes i knew cooper rafe before cha-cha real smooth then i do want you to check out freshman year i mean as i said here in the uk it's very very cheap at the moment so yeah definitely worth checking out and it is a yay for freshman year and it is also a yay for the aviary another very low budget very small scale film but it's questions of the objective truth of things of brainwashing of how you respond, how you react to being in a cult. It's very, very well done. It's very hard-hitting, brilliantly acted by Marlon Ackerman and Lorenzo Itzo. And yeah, I think The Aviary is also a film I recommend, and that is a yay. So that brings me to the end of this particular show, and all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. 
and I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.